Welcome to Green Grid Radio. I'm your host tonight, Diane Wu, and I invite all of you listening out there to take a deep breath. I promise that after you listen to today's episode, you'll think about breathing in a whole new way. Here's Biome, produced by our very own Mallory Smith. It's 2014 in Stanford, California. My lung function is 40%. Now big breath in. Blow. Blow, 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 blow. Good, keep blowing. Just a little more, just a little more. Breath in deep. Good. (coughs) Water. (coughs) In my room in the B1 ward of Stanford Hospital, I've just finished my pulmonary function test. A mural of white butcher paper hangs on the wall, reading, We love you, Mallory, with marker decorations of flowers and squigglies and spirals. I pick up a book and listlessly turn a few pages before putting it down again. I'm waiting for the infectious disease team to do their morning rounds and for the pulmonary team to see the results of my lung function test. I've been in the hospital for 19 days now. When I was three, my mom was pregnant with her third child. I was pushing to name her Chomperina after my favorite character in the land before time. But one day, my mom told us that Chomperina wouldn't be coming to live with us. Her doctors had told her to terminate the pregnancy. My would-be younger sister had cystic fibrosis, the number one genetic killer of children in the United States. The doctors said it wouldn't be fair to bring a child into this world knowing that it would suffer and probably die within a few years. I was three at the time. The next day, I was tested for cystic fibrosis, and it turned out I had the disease too. When you have CF, it's like the inside of your body is the battleground for a war of aggression that's waged at the level of your DNA. Since it's a progressive disease with no cure yet, CF usually becomes a stronger and stronger foe as you grow older. Over time, it expands its military occupation to more organs and causes worsening damage to the native physiology it's attacking. It operates like this. A defective protein caused by the cystic fibrosis mutation interrupts the flow of salt in and out of cells, which makes thick, sticky mucus build up in the lungs, pancreas, and other organs. In most cases, the vicious cycle of chronic infection, inflammation, and scarring in the lungs eventually leads to death from respiratory failure. CF isn't a disease that you can forget about until you get sick. It's the kind of disease you're fighting every minute of every day. Its armies gain on me with each passing year, with the quantity and severity of complications snowballing as I get older. When I was three, when I was diagnosed, I started doing hours of chest percussion therapy and breathing treatments every day. (coughs) By the time I was six, I was an expert pill swallower, stomaching 40 to 60 pills a day. 
There were antibiotics, inhaled bronchodilators and mucolytics and corticosteroids, digestive enzymes and other drugs to protect my lungs, sinuses, pancreas, intestines, liver and bones. My parents tried to make all of this fun. They called the treatments astronaut because the contraption looks sort of like a spacesuit. And we played board games and had friends over to pass the many hours I spent hooked up to a machine. My life changed forever with the diagnosis. But in 1998, when I was six years old, we discovered something that seemed to work better than any drug. It was 1998 in Maui, three years after my diagnosis. My lung function was still 100%, even though I had the typical CF symptoms and needed to follow the full treatment regimen. I was with my family for our annual vacation. Before this trip, I was always too scared to put my head underwater in the ocean. I was a really good swimmer, but I had two equally rational fears. First, that the salt would burn my eyes, and second, that an evil sea creature would pull me beneath the surface and bury me. It was mid-morning and my older brother Micah and I were sitting in the wet sand. He would reach into the muck to collect sand crabs and then present me with the crawling handful to watch my squealing reaction. We were digging our hands and feet down and holding on each time a wave broke so the rushing water wouldn't knock us over and carry us away as it sloshed farther and farther up the beach. Each time the water swept around us, we yelped a little bit cold and a little bit exhilarated. My dad came down to the edge of the water. It was time for him and Micah to go swimming, out really deep, my brother called it. Micah asked, will you come with us? And I said, yes, but daddy, you can't let Micah try to push my head underwater. When we got to the out really deep part of the ocean, a whole 10 feet from the shore probably, I swam around with my neck craned up toward the sky to stay above water. When the first wave came, Micah and my dad went, ah In my family, that means they dove under the wave and held onto the sand until the wave passed. I was anxious when they stayed under the water for a few extra seconds to hear the humpback whales singing. That day, my dad convinced me to put my head underwater and go awugaing with him and Micah for the first time. From the first wave I dove under, the underwater world felt like some place I was meant to be, a place I needed to be. I'd dive down to the bottom and grip onto the sand with all my six-year-old might and stay just long enough to hear the whales, and then I'd emerge coughing and sputtering and blowing the salt water out my nose. And when we got out of the water two hours later, my parents noticed something I wasn't even conscious of at the time. That I was coughing more than usual, a rattling, wet cough. But by the end of the trip, after being out in the really deep every day, I wasn't coughing at all. I was symptom free. We didn't understand why at the time, but we kept going back. Because there was something about being there that just seemed to make me healthy. In the early 1990s, researchers figured out that surfers in Australia with CF live 10 years longer than other patients, and they wanted to know why. 
they discovered that salt water actually hydrates the thick, sticky mucus in the lungs we spend hours a day trying to get out, which makes it easier to keep the lungs clear of infection. Now I inhale a salt water solution through a nebulizer for 45 minutes a day. It's one of my most important treatments, and I feel it when I skip it. But throughout my life, I've also used Hawaii as a natural delivery method for one of the most effective therapies that exists. Since I learned how to dive under the waves and listen to the humpbacks that day when I was six, I've spent my life in the ocean and in the outdoors. It makes me live better and longer. And these were the only sources of healing I thought I could rely on forever. I'll never become resistant to the way the ocean penetrates my deepest airways and rattles the sticky phlegm. A megadose of clean, warm air has no harmful side effects. But by the time I hit high school, I came to realize that Hawaii's environment, the one source of healing I took for granted, is being threatened. And when I looked a little deeper, I realized it's being threatened in ways that parallel the way CF threatens me. It was 2004 in Los Angeles, nine years after my diagnosis. It was the day before I was set to start seventh grade, and my lung function was 90%. I was walking with my mom down Sunset Strip, looking for a location for my upcoming bat mitzvah. It was kind of a hazy August day, and the nightclubs looked grimy and seedy to me during the daytime, enrobed in LA smog. As we passed the House of Blues, my mom's phone rang. Hello, she said. I was waving at her to draw her attention over to something and she just shot me this scathing look and I stopped in my tracks. She was silent for a little while. And finally she just said, oh fuck, fuck. The street was humming with people but I had this sensation where all I could hear was the tinny voice on the other end of the line, which was the voice of my doctor. My mom asked if we needed to come now, and I heard my doctor say, yes, yes, right now. I asked her what's wrong, and she made this guttural noise, a noise like when you're just about to speak, but the words get tangled in your throat and you can't choke them out. And I said, what, what? That was Dr. Ponchai, she says. Your sputum culture results came back. You have, and, and she just looked at me. And she paused, because she couldn't say it. We got in the car to drive to the hospital, and she cried silently the entire way. We found out that day that I was colonized with Burkholderia sinocipatia, otherwise known as B. cipatia. It's the deadliest strain of the deadliest bacterial infection known to CF lungs. A lot of whispering took place while I slept, tossing and turning and coughing with a force and depth I hadn't known before. That hospitalization, my first one ever, everyone was trying to put a weight on my shoulders, trying to make me feel the heaviness of a mortality consciousness. But I couldn't. How could they explain to an 11-year-old child that the trajectory of her entire future has changed because of one virulent and highly resistant pathogen? that her health could rapidly deteriorate at any time, 
that she could never be around other patients with CF because of the danger of transmitting the infection to them, that she might never be able to get a lung transplant. I didn't realize that my chance encounter with an opportunistic pathogen was like walking up to the devil's vending machine. I gave up my trust, my life as I knew it. And in return, I left with the sinking and undeniable reality of my mortality. The devil's vending machine is no stranger to Hawaii. Like my encounter with a colonizing pathogen forced me to trade ignorant innocence for a cold, hard dose of reality, the islands have been trading ecosystems for exploitation since their encounter with a very different colonizing pathogen, Westerners. It was 1778 in Waimea Bay in Kauai. James Cook and his explorers arrived on the islands and established Western contact and eventually colonization of Hawaii. It would be one small step for man, one devastating loss for mankind. The island ecosystem of Hawaii is like a house of cards. The most biodiverse places are also usually the most vulnerable, in part because they have the most to lose. Introducing non-native species pulls a card out of the system and the whole web can come tumbling down. The survival of each individual species depends on the health of the ecosystem as a whole. A sinister example of the cascade of damage invasive species bring to a fragile system is the story of the o'o bird. The Kauai o'o was an iconic honey-eater bird endemic in subtropical forests in Kauai. Habitat change, non-native species, and mosquito-borne diseases drove them to extinction. It was most known for its beautiful haunting bird song, a song that can no longer be heard ringing through the trees. Westerners didn't just bring invasive species. They themselves acted as invasive colonizers on the islands, akin to the Bisapatia colonizing my lungs. Just as the Bisapatia bacteria erode the health of the biome within my lungs, Westerners eroded the health of the biome on the islands. When the islands were colonized with their macroscopic version of Bisapatia, a permanent change in the trajectory of the ecosystem's health was set in motion and a mortality consciousness was established for the islands themselves. The arrival of Westerners in Hawaii ushered in a new wave of ecological disruption that has been shaking the house of cards ever since. You could argue it's already crumpled and fallen. Hawaii now has the highest rate of extinction per square mile on Earth. The body of a CF patient is also like a house of cards. The tiniest changes can rattle the system, and the accumulation of these little assaults can make the whole house crumple and fall. The year I turned 17 was one of those years when my body suffered a new wave of ecological disruption. A few months of disordered eating was enough to give my Bisapatia infection the upper hand and permanently alter the trajectory of my health. It was 2010 at UCLA Hospital. It was the spring of my senior year of high school, and my lung function was down to 60% from my then baseline of 75%. I was also 15 pounds underweight. 
I was in the hospital for a triple threat cocktail of IV antibiotics, four chest percussion treatments a day, and 2,000 calories of pure milky fat pumped into my veins daily through my central line. I'd been battling my obesopatia for six years at this point, and that day, I was losing. I woke up on my eighth day in the hospital to a knock on the door. It was my doctor, Dr. Ponchai. In a low voice and his thick Thai accent, he said, Mallory, your weight has dropped yet again today, and your white blood count has climbed to 19,000. The lipids are not working. You're not responding to the antibiotics, and I'm very concerned. Your case is very complicated. His voice broke on complicated, and his eyes started to water. In 10 years as his patient, that was the first time I ever saw him look scared. Healthy people have thousands of bacteria species present in the lungs. It's a microbial ecosystem that remains healthy because the diversity of species means no individual bacteria can gain too much traction. But cystic fibrosis makes this type of polyculture impossible because once you're colonized with a bacteria like B. cepatia, that strain outcompetes the other species and resists eradication by even the most powerful antibiotics. The diversity of bacteria present in a healthy polyculture disappeared when the B. cepatia settled in the biome of my lungs. Now I'm stuck with a monoculture system perched atop airways that are growing increasingly fragile from the endless assault. Dr. Ponchai was running out of ideas for what to do, so he performed a bronchoscopy to suction mucus from deep in my lungs. He directed the tube into the fragile, thin airways toward the bases of the lungs, but the scope accidentally punctured one of the airways. As I recovered from anesthesia, my body started shaking violently and erratically as my temperature rocketed to 106 degrees. The B. cepatia bacteria had leaked into my bloodstream through the puncture in my airway, causing sepsis. I struggled against five nurses as they held my convulsing limbs down and covered me with ice packs and cold towels. It felt like the infection was this Tasmanian devil raging through my body and the only way I could get rid of it was to shake it out. People with B. cepatia, especially my strain, can randomly get what's called cepatia syndrome, an untreatable pneumonia that can lead to death within weeks. That night at UCLA hospital when I was 17, my parents and doctors thought I had Cepatia syndrome. They thought that night was the beginning of the end. But eventually, my fever broke. It took a few more weeks in the hospital and a few months of home IV antibiotics for the pneumonia to resolve and my weight to climb back to a healthy number, but I got better. I still felt robbed, though. My infection ransacked my body. I'd never been so weak. We discussed putting me on the lung transplant list for the first time. It had been a very real possibility that I could have died. It was an aggressive act that advanced me into a new chapter of the disease, pulled a little bit more control over my health away from me, and forever altered the landscape of my lungs. And the experience of it, even though it was surreal, made me visualize the inside of my body in a completely new way. I hated it for failing me. 
I hated it for making me struggle. I hated it because when I pictured the little green armies of bacteria and mucus versus the little red and white armies of my immune system and the drugs, I saw my team losing. And as my armies started losing, I lost confidence that we could win the war. I knew how the story ended, and it started to feel like resisting was pointless. In 1893, insurgents in Hawaii led by Americans overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy. The initial colonization of Hawaii had created a mortality consciousness for the islands themselves, just like my colonization with B. Cepatia at age 11 had done for me. My health was being threatened before my sepsis and pneumonia of 2010 catapulted my progression to another level. The elements of the Hawaiian environment were already being threatened before the Kingdom of Hawaii fell. The survival of the very soil that yielded their sustenance, the water they fished, volcanoes and craters so deeply embedded in Hawaiian mythology. But the overthrow of the monarchy was an aggressive act that catapulted the progression of destruction onto a completely different plane. The disease of Western colonization and the symptoms of environmental exploitation would progress after the puncturing of the monarchy and the septic infection of industrial agriculture and modernization that followed. Just like my own disease and my own symptoms progressed following the puncturing of my lung and the septic infection that rocked my body afterward. The islands, when healthy, supported thousands of species within its forests and mountains and waters. It was an ecosystem that remained healthy because the diversity of species kept the web of life in balance, with no one species gaining enough traction over the others to eliminate them and take over. Agriculture was diversified and small-scale, with many crops existing together on each farm. But Western colonization made this type of idyllic polyculture impossible by making the islands susceptible to virulent cash crops, sugar and pineapple. Changes in land ownership laws in the late 1840s solidified a new economy based on plantation production and cash crop exports. Rainforests collapsed to make room for monoculture plantations, huge swaths of land with just one crop, whose growth is stoked using chemical fertilizers and pesticides and industrial machinery. Agribusiness dictated the direction of the islands, and biodiversity was not on the winning side. Worldwide demand for sugar made the industry spread throughout the islands as rapidly as a septic infection, until they were plagued with plantation syndrome, a rapid pooling of money and non-native crops in the hands of the few, a progressive ecological pneumonia that's untreatable. The symptoms? Irreparable wreckage of natural habitat and forest, the loss of biodiversity, dependence on powerful pesticides that keep the crop from failing, but fight chemical warfare against the natural flora and fauna, the crumbling of soil fertility, and the disintegration of the native practice of existing in harmony with nature. Gone were the healthy, diversified farms present in a healthy polyculture. From that time on, Hawaii was stuck with a monoculture system, perched atop soils that are, to this day, growing increasingly fragile from the endless assault. It was 2012 in May, my sophomore year of college. My lung function was 50%. 
For the past year, I'd been slammed with complication after complication, and I'd been in the hospital five times just that school year. It seemed like every organ system of my body had suffered abuse. I was in a really dark place, and for the first time, I was diagnosed with depression. One day in the middle of this Maui trip, I woke up and everything felt heavy. My body felt heavy, my head felt heavy, my heart felt heavy. Driving to the beach, I had a hard time looking at the sun. The day was too bright, the sky too blue. And when I got there, I went straight for the ocean and submerged underwater, trying to hold my breath as long as I could so I could stay there because it was the only place where the pieces of myself came close to coming back together again. I was thinking about mortality and disease progression and acceleration, and I felt helpless and vulnerable and broken. I started to cry underwater and the salty tears were mingling with the salt water of the ocean and everything was clear and blue and quiet and I was completely alone. But then I wasn't. I had exhaled all my breath so I could sink down below the surface a bit and I was lying face up looking at the sky through the water and all of a sudden I saw something appear in my right field of vision. This honu, this green sea turtle swam up and it got really close to me and just sort of stopped and hung there and stayed close. And I was probably imagining this, but it felt like it was looking at me, not just looking at me, but really seeing me. And I looked back at this creature with its brown shell and its cracked skin and its large dark eyes. And I'm not a very spiritual person generally, but I thought to myself that it had come along at that moment for a reason. That one sea turtle helped set me on the path to being whole again. It sounds crazy, but it, it did. I still struggled for a long time after that, but I'll never forget that moment, looking at that turtle and imagining that it was looking back with compassion. My soul felt endangered at the time by the threats to my body, and that turtle made me see that I did have the strength to ride through the turbulence of my disease with grace. Eventually, I had a resurgence of hope, and I realized that my future would hold a lot more happiness and promise than I allowed myself to believe throughout my depression. The sea turtle is a sacred animal, an ancient Hawaiian symbol for longevity, safety, emotional strength, and wisdom. Hawaiian legend has it that the Honu guided Polynesians to the islands, so many Hawaiians revere the Honu as a guardian spirit, an aumakua, which protects them. They evolved long before dinosaurs went extinct and long before the Hawaiian islands were even formed. But the habitat sea turtles have lived in for over 100 million years is changing. All species of sea turtles in Hawaii are endangered, threatened by coastal development and urbanization, hunting, toxic runoff, boat strikes, pollution, marine debris, habitat loss, and infectious disease. Historically, green sea turtle populations were in the millions, but now there are fewer than 200,000 nesting females. The Honu is iconic to the islands and symbolic to the Hawaiian people, but they're also important to the health of the marine ecosystem because they do things like control the spread of algae and coral reefs. Now, with the sacred Honu endangered for so long by threats to the ocean and the islands, it seems like the islands have faced abuse to the point where every type of habitat is affected, forest and mountains and land and sea. 
At the critical turning point, the question was whether the future of the islands would be one of continual decline until irreversible abuses happened, like the Honu going extinct. But the Honu were listed for protection under the Endangered Species Act in 1978, and there's been a resurgence in their numbers since then. The population is still far from what it once was, though, and the threats remain. The Honu may be recovering, but they can't ride through the turbulence of environmental degradation without continued protection. The course of my life so far has been tumultuous, to say the least. I've progressed through the mild and moderate stages of CF to the severe stage. I've lost control and faced permanent alarming damage to the internal landscape of my body. My lungs are an ecosystem forever altered that will never return to how they once were before the inflammation, the infection, the scarring. The course of Hawaii's history so far has been tumultuous as well. The islands have progressed through mild and moderate stages of environmental damage and alteration to the severe stage. Native Hawaiians have faced a loss of control and alarming, perhaps permanent damage to the environment they depend on. The islands are an ecosystem forever altered that will never return to how they once were before Western colonization, invasive species, industrial agriculture, tourism, and development. I used to complain to my parents about having CF and stomp my feet and say, it's not fair. I don't deserve this. Why do I have to deal with this? It's too hard. But the stakes are clear. If I don't step up, this fragile island that is my body will drown under the rising sea of green mucus and disappear, null and void, erased and gone. But this is not a story without hope. Even though I descended into a deep depression for parts of my sophomore and junior years of college, even though I live today in objectively worse health standing than ever with a lung function of about 40%, I've never felt more hopeful, more resilient, more empowered. I'm fighting for the future health of my body. The Hawaiian Islands have experienced abuse and destruction from the tallest mountain peak to the deepest part of the ocean. But for many people who care about Hawaii, there's never been more hope, more promise, more empowerment. Many native and local communities are rallying to fight for the future health of the islands. I never asked to have CF or to be colonized with Bisapatia. It's not my fault that both my parents were carriers of a cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator mutation and that I was blessed to get both recessive alleles. But that doesn't absolve me of the responsibility to fight this disease, fight it with everything I have every day. I didn't ask for illness, but I own it, because if I don't, no one else will. And taking ownership has empowered me to believe that things can change. Hawaii never asked to be colonized. It's not the native peoples or the island's fault that Westerners arrived in Kauai in 1778 and set in motion the disease of environmental decay. But it's up to every person who lives in or visits Hawaii to fight for it and protect it with everything they have every day. Locals and natives living there today didn't ask for their islands to fall ill, but they own it, because if they don't, no one else will. And taking ownership has empowered them with the belief that things can change. But at the root of it all, this is not about Hawaii specifically. 
the destruction of the environment the world over parallels the disease processes within my body that are eroding the structures my survival depends upon. It may not be the current generation's fault that our planet is suffering from the disease of modernization, the infection of human overpopulation, the symptoms of climate change and pollution and ocean acidification and mass extinction. But like it or not, it's the current generation's responsibility to take ownership over the trajectory of this planet's future. If we don't, no one else will. You've been listening to Green Grid Radio. Today's piece was produced by Mallory Smith as part of the Senior Reflection in Biology at Stanford. Music from the show can be found on our website, greengridradio.org. Many thanks, especially to Jimmy Laval of the Album Leaf, for allowing us to feature several of his songs in this episode. I'm Diane Wu, and on behalf of all of us at Green Grid Radio, thank you for listening.